Well, tonight we turn to one of the great stories of Scripture, and that is 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. As you ponder the story of Naaman, maybe not so aptly called the story of Naaman, it's actually the story of God's work in his kingdom among his people, I want to ask, ask you the question, what does faith look like in a pagan land? Now, hey, if you didn't already know it, we live in a pagan land. Can you see faith in someone walking through an airport? I saw a lot of people at airports over the last week, and I wondered, am I seeing faith in these individuals, particularly when the planes are delayed or canceled and there's long lines at the counter of those who are trying to rearrange their travel plans. Can you see faith in someone at the grocery store or someone walking down by the beach? Well, the answer is sometimes you can see it. We never know when opportunities to display our faith will be brought about by the great architect of the universe. This is one of those stories where the displays of faith, or the lack of it, are very evident. A story rich with characters and plots and different things that are going on. Here now the story, as our scripture says in the titles that are given that are added to scripture here in, in the Bible, I don't think this is necessarily a good title, the story of Naaman, but it's also the story of Elisha, the story of a little girl, the story of servants, and the story of kings. But in all, the story of God. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him... The Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away 
It's saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpur, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. We consider this passage of scripture, let us bow briefly to the Lord in prayer. Lord, help us. Help us not only to marvel at this story and to enjoy it, but Lord, to learn from it, to learn about your glory and your grace. We pray, Father, that the words here spoken from your word might be consistent with your own or pass away and never be heard from again. And Lord, give us the ability by the Spirit to understand these things and apply them to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my three children loves to go back and read favorite books over and over again. They also like to watch favorite movies over and over again. Some of us in the family don't like to watch the same things over and over again or read the same things over and over again, but I think a part of that child is like me. I thoroughly enjoy taking some of my favorites and some of the classics and with each child reading it anew with them for the first time while secretly enjoying it again for myself. It was a special treat, as I was saying for them, as they were exposed to these wonderful stories, but it was also a special treat for me. Now, the more I read this story about Naaman and about all the other characters and about the God who saves his people in very interesting circumstances, the more I read and ponder this story, the more I enjoy it. It's one of those stories that we should read over again and again. So I have to say... You might have noticed in your outline that's presented to you in the bulletin, this is a five-point sermon. That means it's going to take a long time, right? It could easily be a 25-point sermon because God is on display as he works faith in his people. I'm going to go in one sense, even though it doesn't say that necessarily in the outline, it's really character by character, or groups of characters by groups of characters. The first character is one of little significance to the day, at least as the world sees it. This character is someone who is displaying a great faith. In fact, this particular individual is the key to this whole story and chain of events. And yet, it's an unnamed little servant girl. Perhaps you notice this in verses 2 and 3. Now, the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. 
She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, and he would cure him of his leprosy. We just kind of read over that. And we think this kind of spurs Naaman off to go to first his king, and then off to Israel, and then to Elisha, and this whole circumstance of events in which he eventually is cured of his leprosy. But this faith of this little girl was a faith despite her tragic circumstances. Did you hear what happened to this little girl? On a raid of the Syrians, you know, that's a violent attack on the people of God in Israel. It's possible that her family was killed. It's possible that a whole village here was burned. We don't know the circumstances. We know that she was kidnapped. She was a plunder, a a part of the prey of the people of Syria. And as far as we know, she would never be restored to her family. She was a little girl who was taken from everything dear to her, her family, her place, the people of God in Israel. In fact, it seems to be that she was probably from a family of the faithful remnant of Israel. Because she had faith. Despite these tragic circumstances, she hears the plight of her new master, Naaman, and she is a typical slave, right? Caring about her master. No, that's not typical. The typical exile slave from a foreign land, captured by a foreign people, is not going to care about her master's welfare. And yet here is she, this little girl knowing no better, saying to her mistress, the wife of Naaman, Mrs. Naaman, so to speak, if only he could go to Israel and see the prophet, his leprosy, his skin disease would be gone. You know, it's with the humbling faith of a child that so often the things of the kingdom of God start. I don't have to tell you that Jesus said, unless you become like a child, placing that child in the presence of the disciples, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is it like a child? Well, here's the simple faith of a child who has complete faith in the power of God through the instruments, in this case, of his prophets. She is, in essence, the one who dares to be a Daniel. We have that song in many hymnals, don't we? Dare to be a Daniel. Someone who in exile amongst a people not his own, amongst a people who don't believe in the true God, yet acts faithfully, praying, serving God in the place to which they've been given. This is a little girl who has not been given the letter of Jeremiah to the exiles, where it tells them, the welfare of the people to which you live now is your welfare. Pray for them, serve them, plant fields. All of those things. She didn't have all that, but by her faith, she was already doing these things. Her faith is on display under duress. And it's by this small child, taken from her home in violence, that God is going to work a great work amongst his people. But in the midst of this, we come to the next two characters, Perhaps the most powerful and the wealthy 
These are the displays of worldly paganism, displayed first by the king of Aram, otherwise known by us today as Syria, and the display of the king of Israel. Of course, in these days, it was King Joram, one of the sons of Ahab, who was ruling during the time of Elisha. So here's this little girl. Would that my master go off to Samaria where... There is a prophet who could cure him of leprosy. So Naaman first goes to his master, the king of Syria. And he says this. Naaman went in, told his lord, verse 4, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And of course, he didn't say thus and so. He actually told the king what she said. But this particular thing kind of uh, condenses it so we don't get the whole repetitive thing. He says, here I have this girl in my house. She has said, if I just go to Samaria, where this prophet is, my leprosy can be cured. Now, why in the world does this king even, uh, even care about Naaman and his skin disease? Well, we find out he's a great man, it says in verse 1, with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So this king sees this situation and says, I want this for my commander. Now, did the king really believe that this leprosy could be cured, this skin disease? I don't know. doesn't say one way or the other. But notice his reaction is just what kings do, isn't it? That is one commentary writer, his name is House, and he says about this particular passage, this king did as kings do. What does he think that needs to happen in this circumstance? First of all, the use of diplomacy. A letter of introduction was given. Here is my servant Naaman. Here is his problem. I introduce him to you, and so here is the situation. But he also does something else. He uses the great riches. After all, kings know the red tape of bureaucracy. They know that it's going to take bribes and different things, maybe amongst officials of the kingdom. Maybe it's a tax or a fee that this king will charge. I don't know what it is. He knows that perhaps by these riches he could get through all the red tape of government and even on top of that, pay some faith healer to do his work. So the king of Aram displays worldly paganism, not faith in the fact that Naaman could be healed, but the hope that perhaps this king, after all, it's the king who controls all things in his kingdom, could cure his servant Naaman. So off goes Naaman. Notice what he does. He takes with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. We know that he has horses and chariots later on in this passage. So there's an entire retinue that goes with this man, important, perhaps the top military commander in all of Syria. And he comes to the place where the king has established a palace for himself in Samaria. Now, what is the king of Israel? going to do. Remember, Israel, one of the two nations representing the people of God. They are supposed to have the God of Israel, Yahweh, the true and living God, as the one who is in the kingdom, in the king's seat, over even the king of Israel. 
But Joram is not a believer. His father is not a believer. By this time, there is rank paganism and idolatry throughout the land, even though there is a faithful remnant, one of whom was this little girl in the house of Naaman. For the most part, this entire nation has rebelled against God and has become apostate. And so what does this king do? Verse 6, Naaman brings the letter to the king, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And the king looks at that, and he does what kings do. Notice these things. First of all, there's rank despair at what he considers an impossible situation. Can you imagine you're a businessman or a leader in the community, and you're sent a letter and a person saying, okay, I want you to heal this person of their physical problem. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not a medical person. I don't have those skills and gifts. And even if I do have those skills and gifts, I can't guarantee that somebody is going to be healed. I can't go across the street over here and say that the hospital is going to fix all the problems of all the diseases in our society. If that were so, it would be a very busy hospital, wouldn't it? And so the king is thinking to himself, what am I supposed to do? Here is my enemy, the king of Syria, who wants me to cure this military commander. Now, the king probably very well knew who Naaman was. He had won a battle against Israel. You know, this is, this is ludicrous in the eyes of the world. Sending your conquering hero to the people he's conquered to that king and say, okay, heal him. So not only does he have rank despair at this situation, tearing his garments in a position of mourning, he also has no consideration of the God of life. Now, there were some kings in Judah in particular and, of course, David, who was king over both Israel and Judah at times, who in these types of situations, the first thing they would do is they would consult God. What do I do now? They might call their prophets in. Maybe Nathan to David. Maybe Elijah or Elisha in these circumstances. And they would call them in and consult with God. What do I do about this situation but not this king? He's living a life of paganism. He doesn't even consider it. He doesn't even consider the God of life in this situation. He cannot look past his own power or position. All he thinks about is, what am I going to do? Notice what he says. Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? In other words, he's saying, I can't do anything about it. This is not a man of faith. This is a man who's only looking at his own power, or position. In fact, the scripture even declares to us, God himself, if you notice on your outline on the back of the bulletin, there is a quote from Deuteronomy 32-39. It says, this is God speaking, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver me, or that can deliver out of my hand. In fact, the king may even be referring to this type of passage in the scriptures, recognizing he's not this God. But he's not willing to consult this God either. In fact, he cannot look past political angles. 
He says, I know this really isn't about Naaman. This is about the king picking a fight with me. And of course, if you read through the next few chapters, you know that time and again, the Syrians are the big enemy of Israel during this time. And they are picking fights with Israel, and Israel is picking fights with them. They don't get along with each other. And he says, this is just another in a long line of events in which I have no recourse, and it's just waiting to be another battle. Displays of worldly paganism. But that's when another character enters the scene. Isn't this a great story? Here's Elisha. Now, how does Elisha hear all these things? Does he have somebody in the king's court that comes and tells him everything that's going on, or is it just the sovereign God telling and revealing to him what is going on in the court? I think perhaps maybe both. I don't know. But Elisha displays here the confident faith of a believer who is mature in his faith. He's discerning the times and the people. He's ready. Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, and he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. He's discerning the times and the people. He recognizes this is an opportunity not only for Naaman, but also for the king of Israel to know that God is the God of life, the God of healing, the God of cures, and also, yes, even the God of death. I have to say, sometimes I think it's important to recognize that believers, particularly those mature in their faith, God will sometimes give an opportunity even to powerful people to proclaim to them about the true and living God. I can think of those times when I've heard great stories, whether it's missionaries in China, whether it's evangelists to American presidents or to kings or queens in Great Britain, whether it's Christian soldiers to the chain of command, whether it's even believers in Myrtle Beach over the last few weeks, there are opportunities to come to even to those in power and remind them, excuse me, there is a God more powerful than you, orchestrating all the events of history, sovereign and even merciful, and he is in control. This is Elisha always looking for these opportunities, like his forefather in the faith, Elijah, and like the others. Here they're always looking for those opportunities, not to see their name put up on a pedestal, but to show that God is present even in the midst of a pagan people. And notice what he does. He's grasping first for opportunities to glorify God. And it says here, the purpose of this, let him come now to me that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. And that's not saying, know who I am, that I'm Elisha. This is basically saying to know that God is at work amongst his people. But then there's the interesting thing that takes place. Naaman comes, it says, verse 9, with his horses and his chariots. Here's all this retinue. Here, assumedly, is all the gold and all the changes of clothing and the talents of silver. You know, this is a lot of silver he's brought. It probably takes several donkeys to carry all this stuff. And here he comes with his servants. We know that they're there because they're there later in the story. 
He's come with all of these to the house of a prophet. Now, this is different than the palace. This is different than, than all the things that the king has. Now it's to a humble house of a prophet. <laughs> As one commentator wrote, his neighbors may not have appreciated the parking of the chariots on their yard. Not only this, but when you read through the story, you find out he doesn't even go and see Naaman. All he does is send a servant. Here's Naaman, the commander of an army, the second most important person in the entire country of Syria. At his doorstep, he doesn't even go out to say hello. Instead, he does this. He sends a messenger to him saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now, it's interesting. There's all kinds of speculation as to why this particular format was taken by Elisha. In fact, there's even a side note by some who would say, well, this shows you that the seeker-sensitive idea of churches is not necessarily the best. This was not seeker-sensitive for Naaman. Naaman was a famous person in the land. Normally you would expect the, the process by which this kind of person would be greeted would be one of diplomatic efforts and following all the protocol of a very important person coming to your house. He didn't even offer to wash Naaman's feet or provide him with a meal or anything like that. He just sent a messenger to him to say, go do this and everything is okay. What was he doing? Well, first of all, he was following God's law. As much as we hate to hear it, they weren't supposed to associate with those who had these skin diseases. Now, Elisha didn't ignore him or ignore his plight or the circumstance. In fact, Elisha sought out this opportunity to display God's glory in healing this man. So we can't say that Elisha didn't care about Naaman. But we can say... He understood the proper protocol from the law's standpoint. And in his faith, he did not go out to meet with this man lest he become unclean. He was also mimicking God's treatment of people. Scripture tells us that God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who Naaman was. Elisha was going to treat him the way God wanted this man to be treated. It didn't matter if he was the richest or the most powerful or the most influential or the bravest hero in the face of the land. He didn't deserve any treatment except be treated as he really was, which was someone with a skin disease who needed help. Naaman, we find out, didn't like that too much. But this is the confidence of faith that even the most important people in the world's eyes yet are treated just like anybody else in the eyes of God. If they're sinners and unrepentant, they deserve judgment. If they are those who turn from their sins and repent of them, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, they'll be saved regardless of their background, their importance in the eyes of the world, or their influence upon it. And yet in the end, here is this. He offers God's grace. This is so significant. This is another whole line, another whole sermon we could mention throughout the pages of Scripture. Is here is he's offering grace to an enemy of God's people. To someone outside the covenant. 
someone that is so, so very hard for the people of God to grasp that God would save somebody like this, that hundreds of years later, when Jesus mentioned that God had grace to name in the Syrian, rather than some of the people of Israel, they were ready to throw Jesus off a cliff. But God's grace is offered even to this man in the plan that God has. You see, God's in control of our circumstances for the sake of his kingdom so that he expects us to serve him faithfully where he has placed us to those we are called to minister to for his glory regardless of what the world thinks. This is a confident faith. Now, we get to the main character. At least according to the titles that people have put in our scriptures, Naaman. What about Naaman? Naaman is described as a great man with his master and in high favor. In other words, he was a favorite of the king of Aram or Syria because of this reason. By him, Yahweh, Jehovah, had given victory to Syria. It's kind of funny wasn't because he was the greatest military commander that Syria had to offer necessarily, although he could have been. It wasn't because of his great talents or bravery, although he was a brave man. It says that right here in Scripture. In fact, the word here for bravery or man of valor is the word that's often used for David's mighty men. He is manly. He's a hero. He's someone you look up to as a, a true military hero for the country. But it's not because of that. It's because the Lord was directing even the affairs of this pagan nation who are the enemies of the people of God. God is not just the God of Israel. God is the God of all the nations of the earth. God is the God of the universe. He is sovereign over all of these things. So here's Naaman, this powerful person, influential person, gifted person, and yet he's in that position because God wanted him in that position. And so we get to this section, verse 11, he's been told of this messenger just go wash in the Jordan seven times, and everything will be okay. You would think Naaman would say, okay, let's go. But he displays a misunderstanding faith. The misunderstanding is this. First of all, he's easily angered when his pride is deflated. Remember, he's an important person in the eyes of the world, and he knows it. So when he comes, he's thinking, as he comes to this prophet, he's come with all this stuff to give him. He's come with the diplomatic efforts of going through the king first. He's come in all the proper procedure and protocol. And here he is ready to see a miraculous thing that God is about to do. But what happens? Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand stop there just a second. Basically, he's saying this, at least he would follow the proper protocol. Look who I am. You can almost hear Naaman thinking to himself, doesn't he know who I am? In fact, the words here, to me, in Hebrew, is emphatic. He should have come to me. 
And here I am going to him and he sends out some nameless servant, his lackey, to tell me what to do. How offensive this is. And people in the world, we think the same way sometimes, don't we? Don't you know who I am? Easily angered when humiliation comes. He wasn't even worthy for Elisha to go out and personally introduce himself. So he's easily angered. But it doesn't stop there. Not only does he say he should have come out to me and stood and called or stood out uh, before me, but he should have called upon the name of the Lord his God, waved his hand over the place, and cured the, the leper. You see, he's not only easily angered when pride is deflated, he's easily offended when expectations are dashed. He's a prophet. Everybody in those days knew what a prophet of one of the gods was supposed to do in order to do miraculous things. He has the razzle-dazzle after all. You know, going out and waving his hands and his wands or whatever he's doing and having special incantations that he placed upon him, maybe doing important and powerful things. He says, I would have thought he would have done at least that. And he's angry because his expectations are dashed. You know, we're like that sometimes too. If God is really God, and he's going to do this in my life. He's going to do that in my life. These are the things he's going to do and the ways he's going to do it. These are my expectations for what a gracious God should be in my life. If God is really God, then he should heal me of this disease. If God is really God, he should repair my relationships. If God is really God, he should do X or Y in these methods and in these ways. And then when we go to church and our expectations aren't met about how other believers should treat us or how church should go or what our experiences are, we go away and we tell everybody else we're so mad at God because the church is not what we expected. This is a misunderstanding of what faith and God are. Not only this, it goes on to say, verse 12, Are not Abana and Farper, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Now, in one way, this is, this is a question that is easily answered. The Jordan was dirty and awful compared to those rivers, especially the one river, the Farper was considered a very clean river with refreshing waters. And he says, well, why wouldn't I go clean in those waters? Why do I have to do it in the Jordan? Why do I have to do it your way, Elisha? And we do that, too. Do I really have to stop this particular sin in my life to repent of it? Everybody else in the world realizes this is okay. This is not such a bad thing. Why do I have to turn from that? Or, why can't we have other gods or other methods of coming to Christ? After all, we should be unified all together. It doesn't matter whether you're Islam or Buddhist or whatever you might be. Uh, there's more than one pathway to God the world is telling us. It's so easily distracted by the simplicity of grace. Just go wash in the Jordan. Because the simplicity sometimes is exclusive. 
We say in the New Testament, looking back on Jesus Christ's death, we say the only way to be saved is to trust in Christ alone for salvation. And the world looks at that and says, that sounds so simple, but it's so narrow-minded. Why aren't the members of Harper and Abana and Damascus acceptable? Why the Jordan River? It's a misunderstanding of faith. Dale Ralph Davis says on this passage, Naaman is offended at these three things. First of all, the humiliation of faith. The fact that God places you down in a position unworthy to receive that grace, just as Naaman was unworthy in this circumstance to receive the proper protocol of a very important person. He was humiliated to think he was just like everybody else, someone who is in desperate need of someone to fix him. And yet, that is what God does to us. Second, he says, Naaman was offended at the simplicity of the gospel. Just go do this. After all, what do we want to do? We want to earn it. We want to be able to give things to somebody, to purchase it, to do things, to, to deserve it. And yet, the gospel is this. Turn from your sins, believe upon Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And then he was also offended at the narrow-mindedness of the gospel. Just what we've already said. For him, it was the Jordan River compared to the Abana and the Farper Rivers. For us, it is Christ alone, as he is offered in the gospel. Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. You can't earn it. You can't believe in some other God. You can't have some other method of coming up for salvation. You can only be saved in one way, and that's the misunderstanding of faith that Naaman is displaying. But thanks be to God, there's a fifth character group here. They're his servants. We don't really know what their faith was, but it seems to be in this circumstance, this is the Bible's display of a common sense faith. Here is Naaman, marching around, grumbling under his breath, wondering why he's come all this way with all these circumstances. Just a year, he's supposed to go wash in the Jordan pot seven times. And here's what they say to him. In one way, it shows the relationship these servants have with this master. He's not like some of the others who might be so difficult to be around. They say, my father. And they say this, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said you wash and be clean? Notice what he said, what a great word. Now it doesn't say they believe it. We don't know if they did. It doesn't say anything. They're basically saying to him, this is absolutely wonderful. This prophet said you are healed if you just go do these things. Why don't you just go do it? That's what we want to say sometimes, isn't it? When somebody comes to you and describes this long, drawn-out sin that they're involved in and entangled with, and they don't want to give it up, and they just have all these reasons and excuses of why they can't get rid of the sin in their life or whatever it is, and you want to tell them, just stop it. Stop it. Start doing what pleases God so that you can turn from your sin, receive forgiveness, and then enjoy the relationship with God that lasts forever. The simplicity of the gospel, this is the common sense thing. What a great word. 
If you turn from your sins, trust on Christ, you will be saved. Here's what they're saying. This is the great thing. The prophet said, go wash in the Jordan these seven times, and you'll be clean. And here it is. What does he do? He listens to his servants. He has obedience to a simple request. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, those of us who are older know what that means. Your flesh starts to get those wrinkles and the scars and the marks and the blemishes. And it's not the same as when you were five or six years old anymore. You would think that when this man was healed of his leprosy, his skin disease, that he would just be restored like a normal adult. But actually, his skin was better than it was before the disease came on. He is restored completely. What about this common sense faith? I think of Paul's letter that says this. Those in Caesar's household greet you. These servants were serving an important person in the world, and yet they had the opportunity to point him to the word of God spoken by this prophet. Here it is, no matter where we are, we have the opportunity in our families, in our workplace, in our community, sometimes even before kings and rulers of the earth, to point people to the word of God. What a wonderful thing that wherever we are, our obedience to Christ and wisdom from God are apt to God's calling. Now what about the story? Should we say this is the story of Naaman healed of leprosy? No. This is the story of God orchestrating all the circumstances in life. The big events and the small details. Those in the church, those outside the church, those who are significant in the world with power and influence, and those who are the smallest with no power and influence to bring about the ingathering of his people to glorify his name. There is a prophet in Israel in these days, and King Joram, wicked as he is, pagan as he is, unbelieving as he is, this God is the God of life and the God of healing, the God who can cure even a military commander of their greatest enemy of the day of his leprosy and bring him in to the kingdom of God. What a God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who can heal the God who can restore, the God who can bring even the most unlikely individuals into the kingdom, and the God who can use even what we might consider the most insignificant people through great cost to bring people into the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord, not only for your word, but for your faithful servants, that you will be glorified. Because you are the God of life. In Jesus' name we pray.